Now, Father, would you speak to us from your word? Would the seed of your word fall on good ground today, Lord God? We receive your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would use me, your servant, to encourage your people, to challenge your people. But you ultimately do the changing. I can't change anybody. I can't even change myself. That's your work. And begin that work in our hearts and lives today. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. If you uh, have your devices, please take them out uh, and click on your Bible apps. I was in Chicago preaching on Friday night at a, a great church, and I said that to them, and they started laughing at me. I said, hey, when you pastor in Silicon Valley, that's, that's what you need to say. So thanks, Brother Arshel. But go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17. Uh, as you're turning there, not too sure what a cocktail table is, but I uh, assure you there will not be margaritas with salt around the edges of the glasses there. So rest easy. We don't roll like that uh, in the church house, all right? Uh, but it's a wonderful opportunity for you to just uh, see what's going on, and hopefully God has stirred in some of your, your own hearts. Then I want to also encourage you, you know, one of the things the Lord put on my heart um, is, you know, there's, there's a lot of millennials, there's a lot of um, people who are uh, living in singleness uh, here in the Bay. And I don't know how we talk about spiritual formation or discipleship uh, in this part of the vineyard without dealing with that, that topic. And so some of you all were looking at the dating series video, maybe you're married and you're going, oh, that doesn't apply to me, I'm going to go somewhere else. Well, I just want to encourage you, um, if you've got children, you need to think through, how do I walk with my kids? Um, you know, we, we've got to have this discipleship framework. Plus, if I can just say it crassly like this, how many times have singles sat through a series on marriage? And so I think it's just good from time to time to hear from both sides of the street. And I really believe that God's going to use this big time uh, to, to encourage you. As I tell my boys, um, there's three big questions we have to deal with. And really life hinges on these three big questions in order. Question number one, who's your master? Who's your master? And um, it, you, you're going to serve one. And the question is, are you serving the right one? Question number two, what's your mission? Why are you here? You, you got to wrestle with that. What is, what is my mission? And third, you have to wrestle with this question, even though you may not get there, who's my mate? Who's my mate? Those are the three big questions that we all have to profoundly wrestle with. And this series is going to deal with that latter one. Pick me up in verse 12 in 2 Timothy chapter 3. The guy who wrote this, his name is Paul. Paul says these words. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, not might be, not could be, but will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But, verse 14, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So when he talks about sacred writings, what is he talking about? He's talking about the scriptures, and for Timothy, his version of the scriptures, obviously he's growing up in a pre-New Testament age, so his version of the scriptures would have been the Old Testament, what we now call Genesis through Malachi. And he says, it is those scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation 
through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, if you grew up in church, maybe you'll find this familiar. All scripture is inspired or breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I got a good buddy of mine. His name is Dave Kinneman. Dave Kinneman and I sit on the board of a university. We serve together. And Dave Kinneman runs the world's foremost research firm as it results to, as it relates to researching culture and what people in the culture think about Christians and matters of the faith. And so this firm that he oversees, that he leads, is called the Barna Group. Some of us may be familiar with George Barna and the Barna Group. Well, he surveyed a bunch of people who don't know Christ, getting their opinions on what they thought about the Word of God. And this is what people who don't know Christ genuinely think about the Word of God. He writes, look at it with me, one quarter of non-Christian millennials believe the Bible is a dangerous book of religious dogma that has been used for centuries to oppress people. Let me just stop right here. I was on an, uh, on an airplane trip not too long ago from, well, it was about a year ago from Charleston to, um, to LaGuardia in New York City. And I'm sitting down next to this, um, uh, this young woman and the Holy Spirit just impresses upon me to start sharing my faith with her. So I just dive right in, share my faith with her and her biggest objection uh, to matters of faith, her biggest objection to the gospel is, but wait a minute, the scriptures were used by Christians for a long period of time to justify that ugly chapter American history called slavery. So there right then, if I just ask for a show of hands, many of you have had conversations along those similar lines. He goes on to say 38% believe the Bible is mythology and 30% say it is just a book of fairy tales. I, I just walked into, just kind of impromptu, um, Chef Choose. Praise God for Chef Choose. They ought to have one of those in heaven. Um, but um, I, I sat down, uh, yes, two or three people, for, thanks for the golf clap. I sat down at uh, Chef Chew's and uh, sat down at the bar to order a quick uh, bite to eat. And uh, as God would so have it, I sat down next to the woman, didn't know she was going to be there, who sold us our house. And I uh, got to talking to her about, about the church and matters of faith. And, and, and she says, well, I can't wait to come there and hear your opinion. And I just had to, you know, I, 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 I don't give my opinions here, right? This is, this is not what we're into. We're into not what does the pastor say or what does the pastor think, but what saith the Lord. This is not mythology or fairy tales, but nonetheless, this is what people think, when young non-Christians see someone reading the Bible, so imagine yourself on a break at your job just taking in the scriptures. What are they thinking? Kinneman says the most common perceptions are that the person is a political conservative, that he or she is old-fashioned, and that they have nothing in common with the reader, irrelevant and extreme. Now, this is very important for us as we just kind of walk through this. In fact, honestly, this is nothing new. Many of us are familiar with the French philosopher Voltaire, who, um, who one day said in front of a group of people, within 100 years, he said, the Bible will be irrelevant. And not long after saying that, he collapsed and died, not connecting those two events together. And then the French decided to put up his house for auction, and the French Bible Society ended up winning it move into his house and print off thousands and thousands of copies of the Word of God in the very house of the man who said the Word of God will be irrelevant. The Bible has an uncanny habit of outliving its pallbearers. 
They have been preaching the Bible's eulogy for years. So this morning, I want to put a capstone on our five-part series that we did on our core values, and I walked you through these, and we want to be a church that's all about the gospel, taking people from death to life. We want to be a church here that's situated in the Bay, only 2 to 3% Christian. I've said this to you before. We don't want to fight with other churches over the 2 to 3%. We want to go after the 97 to 98% of people who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is what the church fundamentally exists for. We want to be a church that's committed, secondly, to grace. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you've probably adopted to a philosophical worldview called moralism. Most, pe- most people in our world believe in some sort of a God or higher power, but typically what people believe, uh, that, that, that the way to heaven, the way to the afterlife, and enjoying this God or higher power will happen for me if, if for some reason I go through life and the good works out, outweigh the bad works. So if I'm just good enough and do enough good things, then God will accept me. The bad news of the gospel is simply the reality is we can't do enough. But the good news is Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain, but he's washed it white as snow. That I'm saved not by my own good deeds. I am saved by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I don't have to perform. But there's an uncanny habit so many Christians have, and that is we tend to forget that once we get saved. In other words, we understand that grace gets us in, but what you also need to understand is that the very thing that got you into the kingdom is the same thing that keeps you in in the kingdom, and that is grace. It's a hard concept to wrap our minds around. There's nothing you can do to remove you from God's hand. You didn't work your way into his hand, and you cannot work your way out of his hand. We are saved, kept, and sustained by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we want to be about that. Generosity, take people from consuming to contributing. We live in a culture that that rigorously disciples you into thinking that the world orbits around you. That's the message every day our culture gives you. You're the center of the world. The world exists for you, your comfort, your pleasure. Consume, consume, consume. That the way to happiness is through self-indulgence. The Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible actually says if you want to be happy, it's not through self-indulgence. It's through self-sacrifice. That the most blessed people aren't those who receive. It's those who actually give. So we want to be a place of generosity, going, taking uh, people from merely hearing to proclaiming. And then last week we talked about gathering, moving people from isolation into community. Now I want to put a capstone on it because here's what I want to show you this morning. All five of those G's are, here's another G, grounded in the word of God. They are grounded in the word of God. So what I want to do with this message is, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, yes, a part of this message is going to be an apologetic that is a defense of the word of God, how you can trust the word of God, not as a fairy tale, not as myth, but God's objective transcendent truth to your life that you need to submit and live your life under. There's no greater joy than to live under the authority of the word of God. But secondly, I also want to create a culture. I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm saying. I want to use this analogy. I want to create a culture here at Abundant Life where you get into the Word daily for yourself. 
Most churches with most pastors, here's this analogy, function this way. They treat the pastor as if he's some mama bird who's got all these baby birds. The mama bird flies away during the week, gets the worms, comes on Sunday morning, baby birds open up their mouth. Mama birds just kind of put the worms into the eye, just, you know, shove the word into the mouth. So I'm really appreciative when, when you all come to me and say, oh, Pastor, we missed you last week, you know, uh, missed getting fed or whatever it may be. Uh, here's what I want you to understand. Feed yourself. Whoever's up here, and I'm, I'm going to work real hard to bring you preachers in my absence who are going to preach the word of God. But listen, here's what my wife is really skilled at. If my wife, you know, I'm, I'm just going to out my wife right now, okay? If you see her writing furiously, but you're going, the message ain't going that well, here's what she's doing. She's having her own personal Bible study. She's going, I ain't getting it here, but I'm mature enough to feed myself. So no matter who's up here, you should always get a word because you ain't dependent on a man to give you a word. You can get into the word for yourself. Oh, parents, wasn't it the most blessed day when your kids learned how to cook breakfast for themselves? When they learned how to pour Cheerios for themselves and they weren't dependent on you, the mark of maturity is when you can come to church with the mentality is it don't matter who's there on Sunday morning. It doesn't matter. I'm going to get a word primarily through them, but if it doesn't come through them, I can get one for myself. I know how to feed myself. So I want to create that kind of culture here this morning as we dive into the Word of God. Now, here's the question on the table. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, here's what I want you to do for the next 20 or so minutes that we have together centered around the Word of God. You're here today and you've got some serious doubts about this book. What I want you to do over the next 20 minutes, it is a mark of intellectual maturity and integrity to doubt your doubts. I want you to doubt your doubts. All of us have doubts. All of us have biases. And it is the intellectually mature person who can say, let me doubt them and let me see if I can get objective truth. Now, here's the question on the table. What is it about this book? What is it about the word of God that has kept it on the bestsellers list for centuries? Why is it that when I, when I go to a local hotel that is not run by some Christian group, that many times I open up the nightstand and there's this book on it. It's called the Word of God. What is it about that? Some of us have non-Christian friends who can cuss and fuss with the best of them, but in their house is this book. What is it about the Word of God that just won't go away? What is it about the Word? Paul says, you want to know what it is about the Word of God that makes it so different from every other book that has ever been written? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul writes, all Scripture is, underline it, breathed out, one translation says, inspired by God. 
and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. Here's Paul. This is the last letter, documented letter he's writing prior to dying. Not long after writing this, he's going to be uh, killed. In fact, according to church tradition, he's going to be beheaded under the emperor Nero. Here is Paul. He decides to write his young son in the ministry, Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And as, as if he's grabbing Timothy by his lapels, and he's saying, Timothy, don't get so cute and sophisticated. Don't get so driven by contextualization that your messages turn into diet word. Give people the word of God. What I tell young preachers all the time, I know you want to read all these wonderful books, and yeah, I quote wonderful authors and use illustrations, but hear me, illustrations are not the meat, they're the seasoning. They're the Lowry seasoning salt. If you don't know nothing about Lowry's, your life is significantly lacking. Ask the chocolate person on the row, and they will tell you what Lowry's is. It is the seasoning. Unfortunately, a lot of churches and a lot of messages give that much seasoning and that much meat, and you can't even get to the meat. If you leave church not taking notes, don't come back to that church. You should get the meat of the word of God. In essence, what Paul is telling Timothy is what I tell every young preacher. Don't get so, so, so um, sophisticated and so cute in preaching the word of God that you neglect the word. Why? Because at the end of the day, it is the word that changes lives, not illustrations, not quotes, not stories. Lives are changed by the word of God. So here is Paul. He says, Timothy, I want you to understand this. Now, if you get nothing else I say, you need to get this. This is what keeps the Bible on the bestseller list. This is what makes it so unique and so relevant. Paul says it is inspired. It is breathed out. He's writing in Greek. It is a compound word translated as inspired or breathed out. It is the compound word theos neustos. Theos neustos. This is a rare word. It's never found anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, scholars tell us it's not found anywhere else in classic Greek literature. It is so rare, scholars say, Paul coined the term for our passage. Theos neustos. Theos means God. Neustos, from which we get such English words as pneumonia, means breath. So literally, this word means God breathed. He says, Timothy, what makes this book different from every other book, what makes it different from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, from Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace, from Brian Loritz's Saving the Saved, which you can get on sale in the um, Resource Center right now, what makes it so different from any other book is God did something with this book he's done with no other, and that is... <laughs> There's life here. There's breath here. And I'm here to tell you, when you read the word of God, you are inhaling the exhalings of a sovereign God. And if you understand anything about the word of God, you know that when God breathes, when God opens up his mouth, things happen. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God said, let there be light, no stutter, out of nothing. God didn't make the earth. In order to make something, you got to start with something to make it with. You make cakes. 
You use butter, you use eggs. God created. Theologians call it ex nihilo, out of nothing. How did he create? He opened up his mouth. In Exodus 3, God opens up his mouth to Moses and his life is changed. It's my favorite story in 2 Chronicles where the word of God had been missing for years after years, decades, centuries. They found the word of God and the king and the people had it read to them for hours on end. And at the end of the reading of the word of God, they tore their clothes and sat in sackcloth and ashes. Why? Because when God speaks, things happen. This is the word of God. Things change. Well, some of you may be sitting here saying, well, you know, the word of God, it's just, you know, Man wrote that. Man wrote that. Let me deal with that for a moment. The first guy who writes, begins writing scripture, is Moses. He writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The last guy who writes, his name is John. The last book that he writes is the Revelation. Do you know how many years go by between Moses and John? 1,500 years. You know how many authors are writing the scriptures? 40 different authors. Do you know they all agree on the central person of the scriptures? Jesus Christ. How does that happen? They're not getting in a room together, consulting one another. Here's how it happens. God breathes on Moses, and he breathes on Peter, and he breathes on Matthew, and he breathes on Paul, and he breathes on John, so much so that they all point to one central person. No other book can make that claim. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, I just want to tell you, there's no other book that can make that claim. That's why the Word of God has been translated into over 2,257 languages. You know the next highest? Don Quixote translated in 60 different languages. There is something unique and rare about the Word of God. Look at the screen with me and what the Bible says about its own witness Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 21, 20 to 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Moses didn't get a bright idea one day and said, you know, I'm going to write a couple books. The Holy Spirit moved him. This is the breath of God. I, I just... I just want to tell you, my own experience reading God's word, there's something I feel in my gut reading the word that I don't get from any other book. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I want to encourage you to get in the word. Have intellectual integrity. Say, you know what? I'll at least give this a shot. Don't start in Genesis. You'll die a slow death when you get to Leviticus. <laughs> save you some time. Start in the gospel of John. John's going to show you the person and life of Jesus Christ. And I promise you, as you read through it, something's going to happen. That is my belief. Let me say something else. And Paul actually deals with this in this text. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul is saying here? Timothy, you can trust this book because you saw me immerse myself in this book, and here's what you saw that happened to me as I immersed myself in this book. It changed my life. 
How do we know the Bible is true? Because literally throughout church history, you have billions of examples of individuals who have played with the fire of the word of God and it changed them. Let me give you four examples. One example is a guy by the name of St. Anthony. St. Anthony lived in the third century. He comes to church one day. Uh, Back then, they didn't have chapter and verse divisions, but he hears the pastor preach from what we now know as Matthew chapter 19. This is the parable or the story of the rich young ruler. In this story, Jesus challenges the rich young ruler to sell his possessions and give to the poor. Here's St. Anthony, third century. He's hearing the pastor preach. He is so moved by the word of God that he literally goes out, sells all of his possessions, moves into the desert, and this is the beginning beginning of what we now call the monastic movement. In other words, when you think of all the monks who have lived throughout all the centuries, they all go back to one man who heard the word of God. It changed his life. He sells all of his possessions, radical transformation, just by sitting under the word. There's a black man from Africa. His name was Augustine. He lived about the fourth, fifth century uh, AD. Uh, One day he's sitting in a garden and he hears a young girl just simply sing a song, pick it up and read, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. He goes to the scriptures as God would have it. God orders his steps to go to Romans chapter 117, where it says that the just shall live by faith. On reading this one verse, he changes his life. Augustine says, prior to this, I was a fornicator. But when the word of God got into my life, I stopped and God changed me. He changed me by his word. A little while later in the um, 16th century, there's a man by the name of Martin Luther. In fact, I was was, uh, preaching in Chicago on Friday night to celebrate the 500-year anniversary. This is the 500th anniversary year of his nailing of the 95 Theses. Uh, Martin Luther wasn't saved when he likewise read the word, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It changed his life. What happens next? Not long after that, he, he goes to this one Catholic church, nails his 95 thesis, and he now becomes the leader of the Protestant Reformation. In other words, abundant life, we owe our existence as a non-Catholic church, as a Protestant church, to this man, Martin Luther, and what changed his life and what caused us to live into existence now as a church is he just heard the word of God and it radically and profoundly changed him. Let me, let me just talk about my own life. I was pastoring in Memphis, Tennessee, and in 2014, after about 10 years, 11 years of pastoring there, I had to uh, come out here, actually, and preach at Mount Hermon. I was the morning speaker. Another guy was the evening speaker. I would speak in the mornings and would go back to my cabin there and get some work done and um, hadn't heard the evening speaker until about um, Thursday of that week. I really sensed God was saying to me, I want you to go tonight and I want you to hear this speaker. It was a profound impression on my own life. So I go and I hear him and I sit down and this guy opens up the word and he goes to Genesis chapter 22, which is a story of Abraham and Isaac. It's a story of sacrifice and his message is on sacrifice. As he's talking, I I don't want to freak you out, especially if you don't know Christ. It's the only way I can put it. As he's talking, God audibly speaks to me, and here's what he says. Like, I called Abraham to make a sacrifice with Isaac. I'm calling you to make a sacrifice. This is your last year at Fellowship Memphis. I'm going to lead you away. When you get home, you will have several job offers, and I need you to be open to them. It so freaked me out, I looked around several times. I got got that audible word three times. Now, let me help us. Some of you all, you, you're, you're doubting that story. Now, I'll show you what God did and it'll erase your doubts. But others of you, that's just how you function. God's always given you an audible word. Listen to me. 
When, that, when stuff like that happens to me, here's what I always say. If it's of God, I don't need to manufacture anything. It'll happen. If it's of God, it'll happen. Here's what I need you to understand. The Holy Spirit will never give you a word that's in contradistinction or in opposition to God's word. Those two things always, always, always work in conjunction. Whereas my pastor said, my pastor, he told this story in front of 13,000 people one day. He says, you know what? A couple weeks ago, a young lady called me up. That's my pastor talking. 5.30 in the morning and says, the Lord gave me a word for you, and that is I'm to be your wife. Now, my pastor said, my first thought is, how, couldn't he, how come he couldn't give you a word to, t- to tell you to call me at a more decent hour than 5.30 a.m.? But my pastor says, that can't be from the Lord, because what does the Lord want me to do with the woman I'm sleeping next with right now? God will never give you a word that's in opposition to his word. The spirit and the scriptures are friends. So I said it to myself at Mount Hermon, if that's of the Lord, it'll be true. I get home within the next couple of weeks, three straight job offers. The third one, God says, that's the one I'm moving you. And he moves us to New York City. What began that transformation, friends? It is sitting under the authority of the Word of God. The Word changes. I know I said I'd give you four stories. Let me give you five. As a pastor, I'm allowed uh, one extra one. My dad was preaching in Kingston, Jamaica at an outdoor revival. And as he's preaching in Kingston, Jamaica at an outdoor revival, he's just opening up the scriptures, reading the scriptures. As he's reading the scriptures, a Rastafarian man with a machete is walking by long dreads. And as he hears the scriptures, this Rastafarian man stops what he's doing and comes to the altar. This isn't the time to have the altar call. My dad stops what he's doing. He says, can I help you? This man says to my father, what is it that you just read? Please read that again and explain it to me. My dad reads it to him again in front of all these people. And this man on the spot gets saved, leaves his machete at the altar. And he says, I had just found out my wife had cheated on me. I was going home to chop her head off. But when I heard this word, something happened. There is power, friends, in the word of God. And I want us to create a culture where we unleash the power of God's word. Because we are in a culture that wants you to feast at the table of trivial things. Some of us will think nothing of, you know, binge-watching some Netflix TV show. I'm not anti-Netflix TV shows. But you will always have an excuse as to not to feast on the table of God's Word. God is saying, would you put down the Cheetos of the world and get to the ribeye of my Word? There is power when you come to the Word of God. Well, what does the word of God do? How can I expect this word to change my life? Paul says all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable. That is, it is useful for four things. Four things the word of God will do in your life. Number one, he says, it is profitable for teaching, for teaching. For teaching, the Greek word here for teaching is a word that means righteousness. In other words, the word of God shows us the right way in which, in which you're to live. Now, I just want to invite you to my home. Corey and I are going to celebrate 18 years of, of marriage. We've been together for about 19 years. I just want to flat out say, 
And hopefully she'll amen this. I don't know if we'd still be married today if it wasn't for the word of God. For sure, our marriage would not be flying at the altitude that it is if it was not for the engine of the word of God. I can tell you, I have married. The the Bible says, he who findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Uh, Not necessarily that way, the Hebrew. Um, I done found me a good thing. And here's, here's how I know I found me a good thing. Proverbs 31 thing is early in the morning. My wife gets up at 5.45 a.m. She makes her coffee. She sits there in the living room and she's got the scriptures open. Hear me. As much hell as we've been through just by normal life stuff, we are not going to be having the marriage that we're having unless we're coming to the word of God that teaches us the right way we're to go. The mantra of Corey and I's life in our marriage is, what does the word say? What does the word say? What does the word say? Listen to me. All of us have what we call narrative truth. But what we have to learn to do is to submit our narrative truth to the objective truth of the word of God. You have ways in which you were raised, ways in which the culture has shaped and influenced you. These are narratives that you are subscribing to. And sometimes these narratives run counter to the truth of the word of God. And what you have to learn is to submit your narrative truths to the objective truth of the word of God. Let me give you some examples of this. One of my wife's narrative truths, not, 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 not long before we got married, um, I think it was maybe her mom who, who sat down next to her and said, uh, sweetheart, um, I'm glad you're getting married, but you need to open up your own bank account. Put your own money to the side. Your husband doesn't need to know about it. Put your own money to the side. What is she saying there is you can't really trust a man. This is probably going to go south at some point. Make sure you got a little nest egg to go to. This sounds like great wisdom, except the word of God says we're one. So what we got to learn to do is we subject these narrative culture-shaping truths to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? My narrative truth pretty much says that me and my wife are in a contract, and as long as she makes me happy, we're good. The objective truth of the Word of God says marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. Till death do you part. And this is not about your personal happiness or fulfillment. It is about the glory of God. I've got to learn to constantly come to the word of God. The word of God shapes how we view money. We come to the word of God and we say, what does the word say about how Brian and Corey Lurich should steward finances? So it says stuff like give 10%. This makes no sense. It drives worldly financial planners crazy. What are you doing? It's the word of God. Let me tell you, when we submit to the objective truth of the word of God, we haven't lacked a single thing. In fact, we've lived in abundance by submitting to what God's word says. This is the objective truth of the word of God. Secondly, he says that the word of God reproofs. You know what that means? It means it shames you. Listen to me. If you left every sermon I preach feeling good, I ain't preaching to you the whole counsel of God. I'm not giving you a balanced diet of the word of God. If you don't ever say, ouch, the preacher ain't preaching to you the whole counsel of God. (laughs) Hear me, you cannot live off of a steady diet of red velvet cake and German chocolate cake. Did I mention I love those? You can't live off of that. 
And thank you for my elevated cholesterol. <laughs> what you need is a steady diet of the Word of God. I remember uh, I went to Ghana, West Africa years ago with my dad. I was about 15, 16 years of age, and my dad, was, we, he was preaching out in the bush. And uh, afterwards, the villagers, we were famished. They decided to feed us. And they made something that had the consistency of couscous, and I saw them make it, and I, and I watched them make it with their feet. And they didn't have any shoes on. For the main course was bush rat, a long rat that they roasted. I... Wasn't feeling that. I don't care how much grace you pray over this. I ain't feeling it. And, but the, the villagers, they refused to eat until we ate. And they're standing over us. Now, what was funny about that was to drink, they gave us Kool-Aid. I was like, if you're going to go American, you should have went all American, you know? But, he, but here my dad, he shoots me this, boy, you better eat it. Look. And I ate it. Here's the deal. I didn't like it, but it provided sustenance for me. That's what the Word of God does. There are times when you will not like the Word of God. It challenges me. It confronts me. There are times in which I beat on my chest and I say, woe is me. I'm a sinner. I am undone. But we're better off for it. Thirdly, Paul says that it corrects you. It, it corrects you. The idea here is it, it confronts those areas of my life and it brings them into compliance. I had a friend of mine who um, went to an orthodontist and the orthodontist says, you've got some teeth that are, that are kind of going different ways. We need to fix this. And to fix this, I'm going to make this thing called Invisalign for you and take an impression of your mouth. And he, he says, this thing's going to hurt for a while. You're not going to like it. But if you just stick with it and you keep wearing it, here's what's going to happen. Over a long period of time, people are going to look at your mouth and say different. There's change. That's what the Word of God does. The Word of God is our spiritual Invisalign. It presses on those wayward parts of our lives. And it hurts. And there are times we don't like it. But you keep coming back to the Word and keep coming back to the Word and keep coming back to the Word. Here's what's going to happen to you. Over time, people are going to look at your life and say, different. You've changed. In fact, that's how he ends. He says, all Scripture is breathed out that is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Watch it now. And for training in righteousness. You know what this means? It means to bring people from immaturity to maturity in Christ. The Word of God, it just grows you. Listen, if God's Word is living and active, as the writer of Hebrews says, sharper than any two-edged sword, if it is literally the breath of God, and I have the breath of God in my life, and I'm not growing... That probably means I'm not saved. If I am legitimately saved and I'm coming and I'm sitting under the authority of the word of God and I'm surrendering my life to the word of God, and I'm filled with the spirit. Here's what happens. It grows me. It changes me. There's a cemetery in, um, in Memphis. It's the oldest um, African-American cemetery in the Mid-South. It's called Zion Cemetery. And um, I remember one day uh, just walking through, and I saw this one grave site uh, that had been completely turned over. It was a concrete grave, completely turned over, and growing out of it was an oak tree. You know what happened? What happened was one little seed dropped in the corner between the ground and that, that cemetery plot, 
And over time, this thing grew to such a point that it literally flipped this life upside down. That's what the word of God does. You let the seed of God's word just sit in your life and you water that thing and you nurture that thing. You ain't got to worry about growing. Growth is going to happen as you submit and surrender yourself to the word of God. Listen to me. I have no interest at abundant life by simply stuffing your head with more information. We don't need more informed Christians. The problem with so many Christians is most of us audit Christianity. You know what it means to audit a class in school? When a person audits a class in school, they're pretty much saying, give me the information, I just don't want the responsibility. I'm not interested in a group of Christians who just audit the word of God. What we are looking for are a group of Christians who feast on the word, who let the word do its thing. When the word calls out sin in its life, I submit and surrender. What happens? God flips my life upside down. He turns it inside out. This is what the word of God does. As I close, let me give you two illustrations of this and then give you some application for what my time with the Lord looks like. In 1918, there was a guy by the name of Tokichi Ishii. He was a hardened criminal in Japan. He'd been sent to prison over 20 times. He'd eventually be hanged for murder in 1918. Uh, he was executed, this Japanese man, this hardened criminal. Before he was, a group of uh, uh, missionaries, a group of Jesus lovers decide to give him a Bible. Tokichi Ishii reads this, and his life starts to change. Listen to what he says as he reflects on a passage of Scripture that he read. He says, I stopped, I was stabbed to the heart as if by a five-inch nail. What did the verse reveal to me? Shall I call it the love, of, the love of the heart of Christ? Shall I call it his compassion? I don't know what to call it. I only know that with an unspeakably grateful heart, I believed. Days from death, this transformed, this transformed by the word man said, people will say that I must have a sorrowful heart because I am daily awaiting the execution of the death sentence. This is not the case. I feel neither sorrow nor distress nor any pain. Locked up in a prison cell, six feet by nine in size, I am infinitely happier than I was in the days of my sinning when I did not know God. Day and night, I am talking with Jesus Christ. What changed him? The word of God. I was talking to a pastor friend a couple weeks ago. I had been listening to his podcast a couple years ago, and uh, I stopped listening to it, and then I just started listening a few weeks back. And man, I just had to call him to encourage him. I said, man, your messages are off the chain. There's an anointing. There is a depth. What did you do different? I love what he said to me. He says, man, please don't judge me. I said, what did you do different? He says, I just decided to start teaching the Bible. He says, before that, I was doing all this contextualization and all these quotes and all this stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff. And you know where the power comes? The power comes... Just by sticking with the word. That's what changed me. And have you ever heard Billy Graham preach? Not the greatest preacher in the world, but there's a power on his life. Listen to what he says as it relates to his power. When I preach the Bible straight, no questions, no doubts, no hesitations, then God gives me a power that's beyond me. When I say the Bible says, God gives me this incredible power, it's something I don't completely understand. Listen, we're, we're out of here. We're out of here. We've gone way over time today. I want this power unleashed in your life. I just...
I just want it unleashed. Listen, dads, you don't need to have a seminary degree to, to train your kids in the word. Just open it up and read it. Just open it up and read it. Things happen. You want to see your prayer life revolutionized? How about praying scripture over people's needs? There's a power that just comes from the word of God. So here's what I do with my own personal prayer, uh, quiet time. We're out of here after this. My own personal prayer time, I just literally sit there for two minutes in complete silence. It's two minutes. I'm readying my heart to receive the word. God, you speak. Here's the deal. Some of y'all waiting on a fresh word from God and you don't know the old word from God. God has already spoken. He is speaking. It's sort of like you in your car going, I want to listen to some good R&B. Turn the radio on to the R&B channel and you'll hear it. Position yourself. You want to hear God speak? Turn your ears on, open up the word, and he's speaking. So for two minutes, I sit in silence. I say, God, I receive your word. I ready your heart for your word. From ready my heart for your word. And I read about six to ten chapters a day. It has nothing to do with what I'm going to be preaching on that week. I just make my way through the word of God. If you're not that much of a reader, there are apps. There's an app for that. Download an app and listen to somebody, preferably with a British or Australian accent, read to you the word of God. It's easy. You know, you have to work hard these days not to get into the word. There's podcasts, there's apps, there's radio stations. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I read these passages and as the spirit speaks, I just underline them, underline them, underline them. I go back through and for the next 10, 15 minutes, I just read through those underlined, rather pray through those underlined sections. Friends, through it all, God's changing me. As I sit under the power, weight, and authority of the word of God, I'm a better husband, a better father, and a better man just by living under the weight of the word of God. Do you receive that word today, friends? Let's all stand as we prepare to leave. Every week, we end with a benediction, and we simply say at the end of it, you are sent. I want you to say these words with me as we prepare to leave. Oh, God, make us people, say it with me, make us people of the book. Unleash the power of your word in our hearts, bearing great fruit through us in the bay. You are sent. God bless you. Have a great week.